Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Today, we're going to see how Jesus deals with a man who's possessed by demons, many demons, a legion of demons. And you might think, well, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm not possessed by a demon, but this story doesn't just speak about demons. It speaks about the things that occupy us, the things that possess us. What does Jesus want to do in your life to get you on his path? So it had already been a long day. Jesus had been teaching the people and they had been hearing his message and and he had been specially unpacking his parables with his disciples. Spent the whole day doing this and last week we looked at what happened as that long day kind of got into the evening. In Mark chapter 4 verse 35 it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And we know what happened. We studied this particular story last week. They, late in the day, as darkness was falling, headed out across the water. And what happened next? The storm came along. Yeah, they found themselves in the storm in the boat and so it had been a long day Jesus does the miracle of speaking the storm still and now it's nighttime and everything is calm and the boat continues on its journey and now we cross into Mark 5 I hope you're reading along with me in your Bible Mark chapter 5 verse 1 they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Yeah, the country of the Gerasenes. Some of the translations, some of the early manuscripts say the Gadarenes. Some say the Gerasenes. They both kind of mean the same thing. I mean, let me show you a little geography here. So uh, they left Capernaum, the hometown, the home ministry town of Jesus, where he had been conducting his teaching. And they went across the water to Gergesa. This whole area is the region of the Decapolis. It's the, the ten cities. A lot of ancient writers extra biblical sources wrote about the 10 cities over there and Gergesa is one of them and so when they say the region of the uh, Gergesa they mean this this area over here this side over here is the Gentile side from about the Jordan River over you've got the Jewish side good Jewish people over here but from here over it's all Gentiles and this is the direction that Jesus is taking them the storm is almost incidental to this story. In fact, Mark kind of has us almost forget about it at this point, and he goes on to tell the story of what happened at their destination at Gergesa. So let's look and see what happens in uh, Mark 5. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Good grief. I mean, just think about it. What if you were one of the people that lived there? What must that have been like? They're here, they've landed in this town, and right outside of town, on the outskirts of town, uh, where a bunch of people live, this guy is day and night, he's always howling, crying out, screaming in agony, in pain, screaming a demonic, fearsome scream. He's cutting himself with rocks all over and they try over and over again. They try to subdue him, but they can't. There's something extra special strong about this guy. There's something supernatural, demonic strong about this guy. And nobody's got the strength, even with chains, to subdue him. What must that have been like? That'll ruin your house value, won't it? I mean, think about the housing market right there in that neighborhood. Real, real low. Think about it. What must it have been like? You're, you're, try, you're just trying to get your little kids in bed at night. You're trying to tuck them in. Go, yeah, go to sleep, little Jimmy. Jimmy's not a Jewish name. See, it's the Gentile area. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. And so you're trying to get your kid into bed at night, trying to get him to go to sleep, and that's when this guy starts howling again. And it's that howl of terror, of pain, of fear. What must have that been like? I mean, how do you think your children would have reacted to that? They wouldn't be like, oh, I love that sweet, sweet lullaby. I'll just go right to sleep with the howling. No. I bet it struck fear in the hearts of people all over the place. This crazy guy yelling, screaming, cutting himself. This guy is tormented by this evil demon that has possessed him. And I'm sure it's terrorizing everybody around him. This guy seemed to be beyond all help. In fact, Mark wants you to see the way Mark kind of describes this guy, it's almost like Mark's trying to show you his own verbal um, evil meter about this guy. Yeah, I mean, this guy's not good. I mean, if he'd have been a Jew, he'd have been really good. He'd have been fine. You know, maybe it'd be like some of the other ones, you know, who had demons in them, and Jesus cast them out, and boom, he's fine, he's good. Jew is a good person, but this guy wasn't a Jew. He's a Gentile. Already, he's got a strike against him just being a Gentile. On top of that, this guy lives among the tombs. And we know that tombs are an unclean place. You can't, if you're a good Jewish person, you can't go there. Mark wants you to see that. This guy's got two strikes against him. But not only that, he's obviously he's possessed by an evil spirit. We're going to find out more about that in just a minute. So he's got three strikes against him. And on top of all that, a little bit later in the story, we find out that he lives near pigs. And pigs are the worst, right? The Jewish people considered pigs the most unclean of animals. And you did not, you did not get around pigs. So this guy, he's, he's got all these strikes against him. He is way evil but what we're going to see in the story is there is no amount of evil that's beyond the reach of jesus all right so mark wants you to see where this guy is he wants you to see that the enemy has achieved his goal in this guy's life in fact the goal for this guy is the same as the enemy's goal for you and it's the first blank on your page the enemy's goal is chaos he wants your life to be in total chaos. He wants you to be out of control with the circumstances in your life. 
you ever notice that chaos begets chaos? Did you ever notice that when you get a little bit of chaos, that before you know it, that little bit of chaos, it's just drama. It's just drama in my life. But that little bit of chaos gets in there, and it's like a cancer. It metastasizes, and before you know it, it's all over everything in your life. You get a little bit of chaos, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, that chaos is touching every single corner of your life. It grows out of control. It makes you a person out of control. And Romans 1 describes how God deals with people who tolerate the chaos in their lives. And it's not good. It's not good. Romans 1 talks about this. You start loving the things of this world. You start tolerating the chaos. You start letting your life get just a little bit out of control in one area. And what does God do? This is according to Romans 1, not Steve. This is Paul writing Romans. He says that at some point God gives you over to your chaos. At, at some point, God's like, no, 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 I don't, no, don't go down that road. And he tries to put roadblocks in front of you. But at some point, God decides, okay, you're headstrong in this. You, you want that, not me? All right. You can have what you want. And then Romans 1 describes what happens to that person after they've been given over to their chaos. Their life gets all turned upside down, inside out. Everything is backwards. They don't know what to do. They don't know what's good and what's bad in their life. Everything becomes evil, gray, awful chaos in their lives. That's what happens when chaos gets a hold of us. Everything spirals quickly out of control, and that's where this guy is in this story. Pick it up in Mark 5, verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar. Okay, remember what time of day it is? What time of day is it? It's nighttime. How would he see Jesus from afar? Here's what I think. It, scripture doesn't tell us here, but I think they're, they're coming toward land in the boat and he sees their lamps on the boat because they got to see where they're going. So they do have lamps to guide them. And he saw Jesus coming. Jesus touches down on the shore. And he ran, this demon guy, ran and fell down before Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice here in the nighttime, he cries out. He says, what have you to do with me Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Okay, so let me kind of try to, Mark, I love the sentence structure here. Mark kind of puts it in a weird way. But the way this seems to go, the guy sees Jesus probably on the boat as they're arriving on that side in the land of the Gerasenes, and he starts to run in toward the shore. Jesus steps out of the boat, and the interaction is that Jesus must somehow see him coming or something, and Jesus' first words to this man are, come out of him. Come out of him, you unclean spirit. Jesus immediately identifies the source of the chaos in this guy's life, and he's not going to tolerate it. He's not going to put up with it. Even though this is not a Jewish guy, it's not one of God's, quote, chosen people. This is a Gentile, somebody who they see as their enemies. Jesus says, come out. I'm not going to tolerate the chaos in this poor guy's life any longer. Get out. 
And this guy's response is really, really interesting. He says this. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? What have you to do with me? Remember the demons in Mark 1, the first demon encounter Jesus had? He speaks to the demon, and the demons, the demons arrive there. They, they know who Jesus is, and they say, what are you doing here messing with us? What have you to do with us? Remember that in Mark 1? They're, they're, like, they're basically saying, look, we own this world. We've got an agenda for these people. We're bringing the chaos. What have you to do with this? This is our business, not yours. And we see that same idea echoed here. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Jesus, son of the most high God. This is a new phrase in Mark, we haven't seen that before. This phrase designed to show that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. There is no doubt in their mind who Jesus is. Even though their own evil king, Lucifer, tried to overthrow this God, these demons know the truth. They saw it with their own eyes. They were there when Lucifer rebelled and led a third of heaven against God. The whole purpose of Satan is to prove that God's not really worthy of being God, right? He wants to steal God's glory away from him. And so here these demons are acknowledging who the most high God really is. Lucifer's not the high God. You are the most high God. James tells us, that even the demons believe in God, and they shudder at the thought. They tremble. The demons know exactly who God is. They know exactly who Jesus is. But their goal is to steal as much of God's glory as possible. So they're here to break things. They're here to hurt people. They're here to create chaos. That's exactly what they're doing in this guy. They're tearing down whatever good, glorious God order there might be in this world because they know who God is and they know they're going down. And so they're out to take as many of us with them as possible. That's their goal. They know the truth. They know who the king really is. But here's what makes them demons. They know the truth, but they won't submit to the truth. You hear me? What makes them demons is that they know the truth, but they won't submit to the truth. Does that kind of shake you just a little bit? Because it does me. Because I look at my life, and sometimes, sometimes, I know the truth. I know what will glorify him. I know what will build his kingdom. But I hold on to my favorite thing. I hold on to the thing that builds my kingdom. I hold on to the thing that makes me feel good, that seems to bring me value. I hold on to my own glory. I hold on to my money. I hold on to my agenda, my pet sins. I know the truth, but I won't submit. Maybe I'm a lot more like the demons than the disciples. So the demons know the truth. They state the truth, but they won't 
submit. And then it's this next thing, it's this next thing in the story that tells us why this demon encounter is different than Jesus' other demon encounters so far. This one is very different. Look at verse 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. This is not normal. This is not what you and I are used to. This is evil on a whole different order of magnitude. Legion, many. Okay, let me say it this way. This isn't a cartoon. This isn't like Kronk, you know, with the shoulder angel and the shoulder demon. Talking to, do you know this movie, Emperor's New Groove? You remember this great movie? This is when Disney made good movies. Great movie. I recommend that movie, fun movie. But it's not like this. You and I are used to this, you know, because you, you deal with this all the time. It may not even necessarily be a spiritual thing. It may be just a fleshly thing because you arrive at a decision point, a fork in your road, and you've got to make a decision. You gotta, you've got to choose a side, right? And you sit there, and you're paralyzed. You're frustrated. You can't quite bring yourself to make that decision. And here's why. Because you sit there arguing with yourself. And you're like, well, one side of me can see this point of view, but the other side of me sees this point of view. One side of me agrees with this argument. The other side of me agrees with this argument. You know, one side of me thinks we ought to do this and go here, but the other side of me is saying, nope, you got to go do this and go there. Do you know what I'm talking about? So you got these two voices in your head, and they're talking to you, and it's frustrating, right? It's hurtful. Sometimes it paralyzes you from making a decision. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? But think about this guy. This guy didn't have two voices. He had a legion of voices. He had, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of voices screaming at him from all different directions, pulling him in all different ways, tearing him to shreds over who he ought to be and what he ought to do, causing pain and fear in his life. No wonder he's screaming in pain. No wonder he's cutting himself. No wonder he's going through all this because imagine what it's like not just to have two voices but many, many voices screaming evil at you all the time from all different directions. That's where this guy is, Legion. Legion is his name. Mark wants you to see this name because the word Legion really means something to these original readers here. A legion is the largest unit of the Roman army, 6,000 soldiers strong. Now, does that mean that there are 6,000 demons in the sky? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, there may have been. There may have been a thousand. There may have been a dozen, and they just called it legion. All I know is one is too many. And this guy's got many, many demonic voices screaming in him, possessing him, making him act this way, terrorizing him, putting him through great pain and agony. He's bloody, he's naked, he's homeless, and he's screaming and writhing in pain all the time. And the word legion, it means something. It doesn't just mean many, but everybody knew what a legion was when a legion came to your town. It was a force of occupation. 
they were coming to stay they were coming to change your life for somebody else's benefit so legion spoke of terror of destruction of occupation it spoke of oppression it spoke of loss of independence this guy's name is legion and this legion is tearing him to shreds but Jesus's first words are come out come out Jesus will not tolerate this chaos in this man's life he's not going to put up with it he's not going to allow it the abuse the pain the fear Jesus says out with you because next blank on your page Jesus speaks peace into your Jesus speaks peace Jesus brings a singular focus instead of all of the voices always uh, always screaming in your ears from all directions he brings a singular one still small voice focus into your life no wonder the scripture tells us to fix your eyes on him no wonder the scripture tells us to guard our heart no wonder the scripture tells us to meditate on his word day and night no wonder Jesus says abide in me because dude your life especially in the 21st century is chaos but Jesus comes to speak peace he comes to bring clarity he comes to bring righteousness that brings you out of your sinful chaotic disaster of life and he wants to speak it into your life through his word through his spirit through the person of Jesus Christ and you you don't have time for his word you don't have time to meditate on him you don't have time to hear his voice no wonder your life has chaos no wonder your life seems a chaotic disaster Jesus speaks peace for those who have ears to hear are you willing to give up a little something to hear his voice would you be willing to dump off a little of the chaos in your life just to be able to have a little bit of his still small voice my friend David Lynn posted on our Slack channel, our Deacon Slack channel this week. He said, he said man, we all, we all want the peace of God and not the chaos in our life. He said, and we all say, yes, we want that, but are you willing to give up your favorite TV show today to spend time in his word? Are you willing to, to give up a little of your time early in the morning to spend time praying and hearing his voice? He speaks peace to those who have ears. To hear so he speaks to this man come out to this demon come out and in verse 10 he the demon legion begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country so legion may be like the head demon representing the other demons in this guy and he says don't send us out of the country what does that mean what does that mean don't send him out of the country only thing I can think of is that Jesus tells the parable 
of the demons occupying the house. And then the house is cleaned and the demons are cast out. And where do they go? Where do they go? Huh? They go out into the wilderness, into the chaotic place. They have to leave this country, this city, this realm, and they go somewhere different. But they're not gone. They're out in the wilderness wandering for a while. And then what happens? If the house isn't filled with something else, sooner or later, not only does the demon return to the house, but it brings a bunch of its friends with him. And they refill the house. So they're begging him, don't do that to us. Don't send us out into the wilderness. We like being in this comfortable place. We like being inside this guy. For whatever reason, the demons like to occupy bodies. I don't know why. But look at what happens next. Now, a great herd of pigs. Hey, look at this word. What's the word for great? Mega. mega. So it's a mega herd. It's mega pig. They're feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs. I mean, we, we don't want to be outside of the country. We don't want to be out in the wilderness. So send us into the pigs and let us enter them. Okay, this is different. Normally, Jesus says, come out, and demons got to go. But in this case, remember, this is evil on a different order of magnitude. And they argue. They negotiate terms. So look what Jesus does next. So he gave them permission. Okay, go to the pigs. And the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Okay, that just got really super weird. As if the story wasn't weird enough, now it got mega pig kind of weird. It got really, really weird. It went to weird on a whole new level. I mean, I got questions. Don't you have questions about this? I got questions. First of all, why pigs? Why do they want to go be in the pigs? Have you been around pigs? Have you been around pigs? Pigs are gross. They're nasty. They eat, they waller, and they poop all in the same spot. They're disgusting animals, disgusting animals. Why do you think the demons want to go to the pigs? And not only that, not only that, but why does Jesus give them the ability to negotiate terms? Why, why does he give them permission? Every other time we've seen Jesus and demons, it's come out and they're out. Why now do these demons get to negotiate terms with Jesus? And why is he doing and, and not only that, but Jesus had to know what was going to happen. These demons are all about death and destruction. And so he knew that they would get into those pigs and immediately run the pigs off the hill and destroy. Why would he do that? Wouldn't this tick some pig owners off? Do you think Jesus is in the off-ticking business? I mean, think about it. So this area, the Gergesa area, was known at the time for its pork production because the Roman occupying force loved their bacon. No joke. They loved their bacon, and they couldn't get any bacon from the Jewish side of the lake, right, because there's no pigs there. So, man, they had the market cornered. 
and they provided the pork for all of these Roman soldiers all throughout the Roman-occupied territory. That's why there's 2,000 pigs there. And when Jesus steps off the boat, says, come out, and then gives them permission, Jesus, in one fell swoop, ruins the local economy. How does that sit with your prosperity theology? Jesus doesn't come bringing prosperity. He comes and ruins everything. Don't you think the townspeople probably would have reacted better to Jesus if he'd have multiplied the pigs instead of eliminating the pigs? Why is all this? I got questions. Don't you have questions? I got lots of questions about this passage. And so I did some research this week. And it seemed like every commentary I read, every pastor's article I read, every blog post, uh, sermon, let's do a couple of sermons. And I heard several, and I read several, and they, they say, well, this is what it must have been like, and this is why he probably did, and this is what, you know, and they had all these reasons. And after, after none of them agreed with each other, they were all saying different things, it really dawned on me that they're just making up stuff here. I went back to the actual text of the scripture, and what I found out was Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus did these things. God never explains why Jesus negotiated or allowed the demons to negotiate, why he gave them permission, and why he ruined their local economy. It never, he never explained, it's never revealed to us. And here's what I've kind of learned from that. Sometimes Jesus does mega weird stuff in your life and he doesn't tell you why. Are you okay with that? Sometimes Jesus doesn't tell us. Here's the deal. It's the next blank on your page. Jesus owes no explanation. He owes us no explanation. Remember Job? When he's crying out to God, he finally gets an audience with God and he's like, why me, God? Why did you do that? I was faithful to you. I was good to you. Why me with all this junk? Remember God's response? God's like, who are you? Who, how dare you even question me? Were you even around when I created all this stuff? I mean, you're just a new kid on the block. You don't even know what's going on here. And Job never gets an answer. Jesus owes no explanation for why he does what he wants. He does what he wants, and he does not need our understanding in order to do his will in our lives. Amen? So here's the thing I glean from that is that the demons know the truth and don't submit. It's my job to see the truth and to submit no matter what, to say I don't understand it, I don't, I don't know why you do what you do. Your plan makes me angry sometimes, but I know that your plan is better than my plan. So I say yes to God, no matter what it is he wants to do in my life. At least I hope. So don't be like the demons. Submit to God's will. Amen? Amen. Mark 5, 14, the herdsmen who saw all this happen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Yeah, so the herdsmen, they were like, dude, did you just see that? Yeah, I saw that. Holy cow, let's get out of here. 
And they go running, and everywhere they run, they're like, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. And they tell people about this Jesus that cast a demon out of that crazy, insane, demon-possessed guy, but then killed all the pigs. And so people start coming. People respond to this. They want to see what's really going on. And in verse 15, it says, They came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man. Really, it should say the formerly demon-possessed man. The one who had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were, here's that word, afraid. They were afraid. What were they scared of? Were they scared of the demons? <clears throat> were they scared of the demons? Demons are gone at this point. Not scared of the demons. Were they scared of the demon-possessed guy? He looks pretty calm and sedate now. Were they scared of the pigs? No, nope, pigs are gone also. What are they scared of? They're scared of Jesus. We saw this last week when the disciples realized who Jesus might just be when they saw him in his full power and they were like, holy cow, and they were filled with great fear. And now these people are having the same kind of appropriate response to God. They're responding in fear of who God really is right there in front of them. Excuse me. Because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? I had somebody in our life group ask this week, just this week, hey, should we raise our children in fear, in the fear of God? And we're like, well, yeah. What, what do you, wait, what do you mean? And they were like, well, you know, the way we were raised in church, we were raised to fear, you know, what might happen to you if you do anything wrong, you know? Oh, you do one little thing wrong, oh, you're going to go to hell. You know, you better not commit a sin or you might go to hell. And so they were raised with this fear of what God might do to them. And my only response was, that doesn't sound like holy, healthy fear. That sounds a lot like manipulation to me. You know, um, you, should not be as scared of, you should not be scared of God for what he might do to you. You should be scared of God for what he ought to do to you. Because all of us have earned God's wrath by our own sin. We, all of us, have agreed at one time or another with Lucifer, the accuser of God, that God isn't really worthy of being God. And we've stood on the side of the rebellion against the king. We've been treasonous sinners against a holy God. And God punishes sin. God is holy and he is just and he will not let crimes go unpunished. And we are guilty. And so we should not be scared of what he might do. We should be scared of what he ought to do. And so we talked about it for a little bit in our life group. And I had to brag on Diane and our children's ministry. I told her that I loved our orange strategy. We call it orange uh, here. And I love the way that they go about doing this here. Uh, because I'm watching it now in my own grandkids here. We don't raise them to be scared of what God might do to you. We raise them in a confident relationship with their best friend, Jesus. 
We raise them knowing that if they are a Christian, if they are a follower of Christ, if they believe in Jesus, that he is their best friend ever. And that he loves them, and he's always going to be there with them, and he's going to guide them and protect them. That's what we raise them knowing, so that as they grow older and they get to be in their teenage years, and then they start to be able to think and reason and understand the full implication of what God ought to do to you because of your sin, but realize that Jesus is your best friend and keeps you from that. Now it deepens their theological understanding of who God is instead of keeping them in fear of what he might do. Isn't that good? That's what I love about our children's ministry is that they're really, really good at doing that. But these people here, these people on the other side of the lake, they don't have good theology like that. The clear implication here is that they feared Jesus. I'm sure they had been at one time fearful of the demon guy. But how long had that go on, gone on? At some point, they kind of got used to that guy. They kind of got used to the demons in their midst and instead of being afraid it was just part of their lifestyle but now they're afraid of Jesus because they're seeing what Jesus can do so much so look at this in verse 16 those who had seen it described to them what happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs and they the townspeople that had come they began to beg Jesus to depart from them they rejected Jesus. Sure, the demon guy was scary, but he didn't ruin our livelihood. Sure, the demon guy kept us up all night screaming, and we were worried about what he might do to us, but at least he didn't kill all of our pigs. Jesus was scaring them enough so that they rejected him. They were begging him to leave. You know, I think, I think that we're... We're a lot like this. I think that we love some of the things that Jesus does. You know, we love his good teaching. We love his love and acceptance of all people. We love his healing. We love his forgiveness. We love his getting rid of demons. And we want that in our lives. We want him, you know. We're broken in our sin and we're under God's wrath. And so we want all the good stuff that Jesus has to bring us. But sometimes Jesus steps into your life and he runs your pigs off the hill. Sometimes he, he looks at those things that you and I have been hanging on to that we think build our glory and he says, no, I, I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and get rid of that for you. And it causes us loss or so we think. And we have to give up some of the things that we don't want to give up in our lives. Jesus calls us to sacrifice anything that is of this world and not of him. And we hold on tight. We don't like that, Jesus. And so we reject that part of Jesus' ministry in our lives. And I just want to ask the question, isn't, next blank on your page, isn't Jesus worth losing some pigs? Isn't the love, the grace, the peace, the eternal life that Jesus has to offer, the abundant life that he has to offer, isn't it worth us sacrificing some things that we think are all about building us, but it's really just pigs? Isn't Jesus worth it? Sometimes he just runs those pigs off the cliff and he doesn't tell you why. 
I know what that's like in my life. Before we came to LAJ, I was a youth pastor at a growing church in the metro area. And um, my youth group was blowing and going. When I, when I took over that youth group, we were running a solid 18 every Wednesday night in our youth group. When I was done, we had over 250 in that youth ministry. It was, the church was growing and exploding, but the youth ministry was the fastest growing part by far. It was amazing to see what was happening. Kids were getting saved. Lives were being changed. It was amazing. And one day out of the blue, early in the morning, I walked into my office, and my pastor was waiting in my office for me. And he said, Steve, it's time for you to go. Took me completely by surprise. I had no idea what was going I, I, What am I doing wrong? Why? He's like, you just got to go. It's time for us to part ways. I never got a clear answer on what was going on. Why did I deserve to get canned like this? I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. I had to face my family that day and tell my kids, your dad just got canned. Your youth pastor dad just got canned. And it hurt like crazy. I went through some tough, tough moments with that. And months go by, and long story short, God moved us to Elijah. And I remember driving around town. It was for the first two years, I, I worked at Global Youth Ministry up on Fort Mountain, doing youth ministry missions up there. And I remember driving around LJ. I was in a job that didn't fit my skill set, and it wasn't my passion. And I was in a place that I didn't understand the language they spoke. <laughs> and I remember driving around and accusing God. I remember saying, God, you got this wrong. Why did you do this? Why did you put us here? I had no clue what happened. I didn't know what was going on now. All I knew was I was, I felt like I was a fish out of water in the totally wrong place. Two years here, so six months go by while we were still living down in the metro area, and then we moved here, and two years go by of me not understanding and not knowing his plan, feeling like he had just run all my pigs right off the cliff. But then God started speaking through several different ways even through my own kids. And God led us to start a church here in LJ. And dude, now I get it. Now I understand it. Had he not run the pigs off my cliff, I would never have stepped into LJ, Georgia. And I would never have been obedient to him to do what only he knew I needed to be doing. His plan is always better than my plan. Amen? So that's my story. Do you accept or do you reject the Jesus that runs your pigs off the cliff? Sometimes it's hard to accept him, but I'd always rather accept him than reject him. In verse 18, as he was getting in the boat, remember they said, get out, get out of here, get out, go away. So he gets in the boat, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him. I just, I want to go too. Let me go too. I want to go with you. You rescued me. 
None of these other people can help me. You rescued me. I just, I just want to go be with you. And look what Jesus says. He did not permit him, but said to him, go home. Go home to your friends. Go home to your family. Go home to your neighbors. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Jesus says, I got a gospel to spread. I got a kingdom to bring. And, I'm, and, and I got 12 guys going with me to do just that. But I've only got one guy here, and that's you. The whole reason I came across this water and I was here for five minutes was for you. I came here to change you so that you could go back to your family, could go back to your neighborhood, could go back to those people that haven't had anything to do with you for I don't know how long. You go back, you show them your scars. You tell them your story. And you shine my light wherever you go. You are my ambassador to the Decapolis, to the ten towns. This is what he tells you today, believer. This is what I'm telling you today, believer. You have too big of a job to do. You have a huge job to do. You don't have room for chaos in your life. Get in line with him. Let him speak peace into your life. And you do your job. Raise those kids to know and love Jesus. Lead that life group that he's put you in. Influence your co-workers to know and love Christ. Be a light to your neighbors where you live. Be a warrior for your spouse and your family. Your job is that big. Lead your three to Christ. Show your scars and tell your story because that's why Jesus put you here. You don't have room for the chaos. So Proverbs 4 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. Don't let any chaos in. Instead, he says, look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet and stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. That's why God speaks to Joshua, the next leader of his people, and he says, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success wherever you go. He goes on and says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. You have a huge job to do. And the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Colossians 3 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in his place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the chaotic mess of this earth. For you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. There is great glory to come, and you have a part in it. So fix your eyes, guard your heart, and stay on the path, because your job is huge. You have scars to show and a story to tell. And that's exactly what this guy did. It says in 
verse 20, it says that he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Everyone was in awe of the Jesus story in this formerly demon-possessed guy's life. Is that your story? Don't you have scars to show? Don't you have a story to tell? Don't you have an instance where Jesus ran the pigs off your cliff and you didn't understand why it would happen, but then finally, finally you clued in and you realized that his plan was better for your life than your own plan? And don't you want to tell that story to the people around you? Don't you want them to realize that God's plan is better than their plan? Last blank on your page. What story is my life telling? What story is my life telling? Am I telling a story about myself and my pigs? Or am I telling his story about how good he is? 